My youngest sister was born when I was 12 or 13, uh, and so I had the privilege of watching her grow up until I, I myself left for college. Uh, at, uh, when she was about two or three, uh, she was old enough to eat at the table, but not tall enough, of course, and so she had a higher stool, a chair, uh, not a high chair per se, but um, and for whatever reason, without thinking, we put her against the wall, and the house was that we lived in at the time, the house that my parents had owned, uh, was built uh, not according to code. We'll just leave it at that. There were a few things that we found out later that were interesting. Uh, the person that built it had very specific things, and one of those was to have, at about slightly chest level, outlets. And so, for whatever reason, we put my sister in front of an outlet. And one day at supper, from nowhere, she pulls out two little brad nails, licks them both, and starts, turns around and starts to proceed to put them in the outlet. She would have been in a shock had we not stopped her. Now, <clears throat> something about us as human beings, uh, we, I hope you've never had that experience of having to stop somebody from electrocuting themselves. There's a political commentator I, I listen to, he talks about how children are suicide machines, and I, <laughs> I, every time he says it, I, I think, well, that's kind of silly, and then I remember you know, some of the dumb stuff I did, and some, some of the dumb stuff that my sisters did. We instinctively know we need to stop somebody who's in physical danger. The closer we are, the more we love the person, the closer we are emotionally, I should say. Uh, the, the more we love the person, the, the quicker we are to respond. But even if we don't, if we see somebody walking down the street, staring at their phone, walking about, ready to walk into a pothole or into the street where a car is coming, we're going to yell at them, and rightfully so, because their life is in danger. But I find myself reflecting, and when it comes to correcting our neighbor for the spiritual uh, faults that they're about to do, we're a little bit more hesitant, aren't we? Maybe some of that is uh, we've been told by the world that uh, our scriptures tell us, judge not, lest ye be judged. And aren't we judging somebody when we say, you know what, there's a spiritual danger here. Maybe here in Minnesota, maybe we've just grown too Minnesota nice. It's not nice to tell somebody something, that they're doing something wrong. It's not nice to correct somebody. After all, they're, they're just having fun or whatever it is. I recall an incident with a good friend, a former friend of mine, unfortunately, who was at uh, previously a seminarian. We were classmates. He left, uh, left the seminary for, uh, well, actually the seminary asked him to leave. And he started living in a lifestyle that was not consistent with the Catholic faith. We'll just leave it at that. And while he was telling me that, a few minutes later he told me, you know, I keep going to the doctor. The doctor can't find out what's wrong with me. I keep getting stomach and all this dietary uh, st uh, gastral uh, distress. I, I don't know what's going on. I said, well, do you see any connection between your lifestyle and this physical ailment? Wow, you don't support me. That's the last time we talked. Because I had challenged him just simply saying, do you see a connection? I loved him enough to say there's a danger here. 
Maybe you should look at this, consider this. I wasn't condemning him. I wasn't judging him as one worthy of hell, but rather I was trying to help him to see something. His parents, by the way, I ran into them sometime later. I knew his parents well. And all they could do is just say, he's lost. He won't listen to anyone. He's on a dangerous, very dangerous path. Today in this scripture, in this gospel passage, Jesus gives us a model for how to correct our neighbor. And, and some, so much of it is so common sense and so tremendously wise. There is a true wisdom here. And it goes against perhaps our fallen human nature. But when our brother sins against us, Jesus tells us, go to him alone. Well, what do we do as human beings? We try to pull others in. Gossip. Do you want to know what Mrs. McGillicuddy did to me? We tell them over a coffee clutch, or uh, nowadays we put it on Facebook or Twitter. We tell everyone and their uncle what they did wrong, except the person that we think did us wrong. We try to get everyone to convince that I was the injured party here without seeking to heal the injury. Somehow we think that the more we tell others, the better it will be for us. And sometimes the person that we think harmed us has no idea. Jesus tells us if somebody harms us, we should go to them alone. So often, when we do so, we'll find there was no intention of harm, there was no knowledge of harm, or we might even find that we, in the, in the end, were mis- mistaken. Before we do this, we need to be aware of a couple things, and it comes down to what is right. Do we have the right facts? Did the person actually do what we think they did? Is this the right person to complain to? Or is this a person at fault? Just jokingly, somebody complained once about the weather. Uh, they, they were mad that it was raining out and they wanted it to be. I, I said, I'm, a, I'm not in charge of the rain. I'm only in charge of making sure the sun still shines. And even if it's raining, the sun is still shining as long as it's light out. I always figured that if the sun stops shining, we have other problems in mind not causing it to shine. We're dead, namely. But thinking about that, you know, that's just a kind of a crass example of complaining to the wrong person about something they have no control over. So we have to make sure it's the right person, the right context, the right, the right facts. And if we are right and they don't listen to us, there's no response, then that's when we bring others not to gripe, not to, not to snipe, not to gossip. And gossip has, in the end, two prongs. One is culminy and one is detraction. Culminy is where we tell something that's not true. We, we hurt the person's reputation wrongly. Or the detraction where we tell something that is true that's devastating to that reputation to somebody who has no right to know. Both of these are sin, by the way. But rather, when we take these two or three, that we take them so that we could establish the truth, that they could hear what we hear. They may be able to say, you know what? You're not quite exactly right here. Or they might be able to see where the miscommunication is, where we're talking past each other, where there's a change in terms, perhaps. They'll be able to help us. 
But if they don't listen even then to the two or three or four that are gathered to take them to the church, to take them to the wider community, and this has happened in times past, especially with heretics who are unrepentant, and the church declares them to be so, and only the church can, by the way. And if they don't repent even then, Jesus says we're to treat them as Gentiles or tax collectors. Some would crassly say, well, then we mistreat them. No, that isn't what Jesus is saying. How did he treat the tax collectors, the Gentiles? He loved them. He communicated with them. He sought their conversion. And he taught the apostles to do the same, and the disciples by extension to do the same. So when we treat somebody like a Gentile tax collector, it's not to disown them, not to ignore them, not to mistreat them, but rather to pray for their conversion, to pray that they're restored. In the end, that's what this whole thing is about, isn't it? About a restored relationship. If they've harmed us, there's a relationship that's broken, that's hurting, that needs to be repaired. Today in our first reading, we have Ezekiel being told by God, whom I tell you to correct, you are to correct. And if you don't, and they die in their sin, that fault is yours. That would be like my not correcting my little sister and receiving the shock. But, God goes on to tell Ezekiel, if you do correct the person and they do not repent, they're not restored to right relationship with me and to others, the fault isn't your fault, it's their fault. The task for us is to call others to repentance to call them to conversion, to help them to be restored to full union with the Lord and with each other, with the church. It's important for us. Jesus tells us, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We don't gather with falsities. We don't gather with mistruths. We gather fully reconciled to each other, reconciled to the Lord. And when we do gather in that light, how powerful it is. What we pray for, Jesus tells us, shall be heard and answered. All of it begins with the courage to be able to recognize our hurt, the courage to be able to confront the person that has hurt us with the truth, to confront them, as St. Paul tells us to the Romans today, with that desire to love, seeking to love them more fully, more completely, that all could be restored to Christ. In the end, isn't this what the gospel is all about? Not just this gospel passage, but the gospel of Jesus Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, about restoring us to God the Father, that he comes to correct what is broken in us so that we ourselves are restored.